Hello, beautiful light-filled souls. My name is Trisha Barker, and I'm excited to let you know that the second annual online near-death experience summit is coming up this June 23rd with speakers, Dr. Raymond Moody, Lisa Smart, Dr. Jeffrey Long, Dr. Eben Alexander, Karen Newell, Nancy Rines, Howard Storm, Paul Perry, David Ditchfield, Leslie Lupo, Kimberly Clark Sharp, Dr. Tony Chicoria, John Burke, Jose Hernandez, and me, your host. There are plenty of videos to check out ahead of time, but please look at this link and we'd love to have you join. You can get your questions answered by the speakers at this event. And thank you. Thank you so much for your support of my memoir, Angels in the OR, which launched last month. It is such a pleasure to connect with readers, and many people have enjoyed the Audible. So if you don't have an Audible subscription, you can have three, 30 days um, for free and get my book that way. But I would love to hear from you, and I hope you enjoyed this recording. You can check out these interviews on my YouTube channel. I'm converting many of them over to podcast, but enjoy. Hello, beautiful Lightfold Souls. Welcome to my YouTube channel. I'm so excited to be here with another near-death experiencer, and I will get into his introduction in a moment. But first, I want to remind you to check out the link to the second annual Near-Death Experience Summit and also my book, Angels in the OR. But today I'm here with um, Jose Hernandez, and he is an artist, and his artwork um, is really moving and touching and uh, changing lives. So I'd like to begin by just asking you how big of a change that was in your life <laughs> to go from engineer to artist. Uh, it was a difficult transition, actually, uh, uh, simply because my experience of dying was very difficult for me. I really didn't integrate easily into it. Uh, I fought tenaciously to kind of hang on to my more my more educational background, my scientific background, and uh, so it was a difficult transition. It took quite a few years before I was able to finally say that actually did happen. You know, so so I'm sure that's a familiar. You've heard that often, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that uh, we we bring back knowledge from the other side that seems so simple and beautiful, but then when you begin to translate it into this life and this world, you brush up against people who don't believe or don't initially understand, and so it's a little frightening. Yeah, the, the first uh, wall that gets put up is really by your family and friends, your colleagues at work, uh, and they begin to kind of push back and move away and your circle of friends uh, gets very small quickly. Uh, you're kind of put into a, a space where a lot of people think that you're losing your mind, literally. And they, just some of them will say it to you. Most of them don't. They just kind of move away, and but you already know why. And your family does the same thing. I mean, they try to be more compassionate and understanding, but uh, it's very difficult for them too. You know, when, when, when I had my experience, I was a true atheist. Oh, wow. So I, not agnostic, I, but true atheist. No, a true atheist. I didn't believe in any kind of religion. I didn't believe in, in anything. I thought this was all 
fufu and ways that people would make money. So the church was a great business and I, I looked at it that way. And I struggled with the fact that uh, you had to do specific things to kind of be welcomed into a church so that they were penalties. So there was always a threat of something bad happening to you if you didn't follow a specific path. I always thought that a God would not format it like that. I don't know, in my own mind anyway. Uh, the other difficulty I had that was my mother was French. So she was a Catholic. My father was half indigenous. So it was kind of like my mother's mindset was you go find God in a, in a, in a church, in a, in a home, in a space. My father's mindset was, no, just look out the window and everywhere you look is God. Mm. So it was kind of a bit conflicting. So it, it, it added to my mindset of maybe there is none. because there's so many different beliefs about it. So when I died, it was a really hard to process that. That's, uh, that's really interesting to be torn between those two ideologies, the idea of, you know, God and nature and the idea of God and church. And, and really, the near-death experience teaches us God is love. At least that's what I found. And that can be found in nature. It can sometimes be found in a church. It can sometimes be found in, in solitude and meditation. And it's, uh, it's interesting, those, that challenge that you went through. Yeah, and, and the reality is that like you just said, you find God everywhere. There's no special place. There's every space is special. And uh, it took many years after my deaf experience to begin to realize, you know, cause as, as you know, when you have your experience of dying, you get this interconnectivity. You feel like you're connected to everything. So that sense of oneness is really profound. When you come back, into your physical body again, you feel that sense of separation. So there, there's something about being in body that makes us feel like we're independent of the rest of the world and uh, unique in that sense, right? Because we're, I am me and I'm, this is me and I'm separate from everything else. Uh, and it wasn't until I had an experience here not so long ago that uh, I began to realize that this interconnectivity exists constantly. It's not only when we're in, in that other space, which was my thought. So, uh, and, and it's, a, a, it's a brief story. I'll tell it to you quickly. I got stung by a bee and I'm allergic to bees. I didn't have my EpiPen. I was doing a sweat with the First Nation. So in, in the bush by a creek. And I told one of the elders that I got stung by a bee and I have to leave because, uh, I'm allergic and I don't have my EpiPen and my thigh was so swollen already in a few minutes. And I was worried that I was gonna stop breathing. Anyway, he's like, take a deep breath and relax. And I'm kind of like, no, I don't think you get it. I don't think you're really getting this. But I realized that there would be no time for me to get anywhere to get medical attention. So I started thinking as a near-death experiencer, I imagined things. It's, well, this is a good place to go. Please, <laughs> I could hear the water running in the creek and it's so calm and peaceful. And uh, 
So I kind of said, okay, if anything's going to happen, it's okay. Anyway, he got up the elder did. He picked up some leaves from a bush and he says, here, take this and chew it. And I'm looking at him like, gosh, I'm already having an allergic reaction. <laughs> looking at these leaves and they're all full of web and, and spider web and everything. I'm like, you're nuts. You're kidding me. <laughs> no, just chew that and it's going to get sticky. When it gets sticky, put it on your thigh. I said, what? You know, it, it's whatever spirit wants is whatever spirit wants. So I said, okay, I took the leaves. I chewed them. Uh, they got sticky. I put it on my thigh. Instantly, the pain stopped. The swelling started to go down a minute or two later. I actually went into the sweat, came out, and he looked at me, and he said, what did you learn from this? And I said, I, I, you're going to have to help me with this, right? And he said, you understand that that bee made some kind of an arrangement that it was going to come here and sting you and sacrifice its life. And that these leaves... And this bush knew that that was going to happen. And it knew that it had to grow here so that I could take these leaves from here and give them to you. Do you understand what I'm saying? And it just hit me as I looked out into the forest. How profound that thought is that everything in nature, everything that we know is so strung together that where we believe there's no awareness, there is. And it just reminded me of when I had passed about that sense of how everything is so connected and everything knows everything, right? So that was a perfect example in this world of how that is. Because I'll be honest with you, when, when I had my experience of dying, I thought that was something that was just something that you experience while you're in that state, not that something that we could experience in, in the physical world. So that was eye-opening. That is a beautiful story and, and interesting too, how that intelligence we've lost, but yet if you live close to nature, a lot of times people remember those moments. And, and I think sometimes it's a remembering of that interconnectedness and, and that we've forgotten so much here, that, that we are, uh, especially in this culture, this American culture, I think uh, in particular, any, yeah. any culture that's focused on competition and materialism, is largely going to disconnect us from some just deep essential truths that that run through um, nature and run through us. But what an amazing story and, and really kind of touching on some levels, like deeply touching that almost like God is loving us through nature. Yeah. And it's very emotional for me because, you know, it, it makes you feel so much more relevant and so much more important because often we feel so isolated and so distant from everything. And when you come to know that you're not ever and that everything around you is interacting with you and is dependent on you as much as you are dependent on them or it, whatever we want to call it, it it's really soothing, eye-opening, and, and it's very calming. It's a calming feeling that it permeates through you to know that everything is as it should be in a sense, right? Everything's working towards a goal and that goal is well beyond what we may ever know, but it's still doing it. 
Yeah, and that's so beautiful. And that kind of transitions into talking about your near-death experience because I've had people who are dying very close to me tell me, you know, that everything is how it should be and this is the way it's meant to be. And, you know, when my father said that, I didn't appreciate it. <laughs> you know, I was like, no, 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 this is not how it's meant to be. But in the long run, you know, that connection still remains, that love still remains. And and so maybe your near-death experience was meant to be. I mean, like it was meant for you to be an atheist, to have these questions and then to have this near-death experience. So in looking back, um, yeah, just go ahead and tell me the story, but also let me know, Do you, are you certain that it was meant to be? Yeah, I, where I am today, could only have been orchestrated by the series of events that is my life. And I think that that's relevant to everybody. So if I didn't have this experience, I never would have been doing what I'm doing right now. So it changes your life in many ways. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about the story so you get an idea of where I'm coming from. And uh, so I am an engineer and I'm also a kind of guy that likes hands-on, so I like to use my hands. So uh, I was up on a bucket truck. We were running some electrical lines. It was Wednesday. And not that Wednesday is relevant, but it was relevant because it was Thanksgiving the next day, which meant we had a four-day weekend. And we were running late. And this is the kind of work that you just can't stop. Or perhaps it could potentially mean some people will not have power. So we started to kind of try to hurry up. And then what, what we thought about, now these are two engineers who are quite brilliant. We decided, I'm going to stay up on the bucket. We're not going to go up and down. And you just be careful with the trees and navigate, you know, uh, delicately. So... The guy that was with me, my partner, was more worried about hitting it, uh, electrocuting me up on top. So he was more worried about looking up, and he just kind of bumped into a tree. I hit the bucket, and I broke all my ribs on my right side. So it wasn't anything dramatic. Everybody thinks, oh, you're running lines. You're going to be electrocuted or fried. No, that's not what happened. It was very basic and simple. I was sent to an emergency room, of course, and uh, I was treated with some uh, medication for pain, and then they tape you up. So it's a bit difficult to breathe, and then they gave me something which is an anti-inflammatory, which a lot of people use. It's uh, over-the-counter, so it's ibuprofen. And it turns out that I was allergic to ibuprofen. So it started to make it really difficult to breathe. So after I got home and I'm struggling to breathe, I called the hospital and I said, hey, I'm really struggling to breathe. Is that kind of like normal? And they said to me, well, you're all taped up. It's going to be hard for you to take a deep breath. So it's going to feel like it's really hard to breathe. And I said, okay, that kind of made sense. So I waited and waited and this actually took, a couple of months before it actually really got bad because there was a, some issues with my ribs that weren't healing property properly and uh, so uh, 
I kept getting more difficulty or having more difficulty in breathing. So I could barely breathe. I went to the emergency room. They took me in and uh, this is when everything kind of starts. I uh, was sitting in, in, in the emergency room waiting. And I know the nurse said, here, if you need anything, push this button. And I sat on that bed and I was really struggling to breathe at one point. And uh, I thought about pushing the button uh, because I kind of grew up in the South Bronx and we're supposed to be these tough men. I said, no, I could, I could manage this. I could get through this. I always do. And I decided I wasn't going to push the button. I waited about 45 minutes. And when I finally pushed the button, uh, the nurse came in and she just looked at me and she just hit the cold blue. And uh, that was the beginning of my experience of dying. And I had a, a, a series of emotions because I, I was suffocating, so it was kind of slow. And uh, I'll tell you what my first emotion was. When everybody ran into the room, my first emotion was shame. And I felt the shame because I was trying to hang on to this little uh, sheet that you have on. And I was so weak that I couldn't. So they just stripped me down so quickly that I just felt shame. Uh, after I had that sense of shame, I started to feel you know, what if this is real? What if something's really happening here? And what's going to go, what's going to happen to my family? Because I never expected anything like this. So you're totally unprepared. And I'm thinking, how are they going to manage? And that created a tremendous lump or pressure in my chest. I was like, wow, so intense. I've never, ever felt that before and thankfully I said I haven't felt it again, but it was such an emotional moment. Then I started thinking, well, I've been through a lot and I've never really had any challenges, so I'm gonna be okay. And uh, I started thinking about God and I started thinking, well, this is a great chance for God to prove to me that he's real. <laughs> oh my goodness, you actually thought that. <laughs> but I said, okay, God, I'm praying. And I'm saying, you know what? If you get me through this event, I will change. I'll change my way of being. I'll be a better person. You won't regret it kind of thing. And... Uh, After a moment, I'm waiting, nothing happens. And then I felt this sense of anger. Like I knew he wasn't real. I knew there was no God. I, I don't know what I was doing, what, what, you know, what I was trying to do. So I, I kind of cursed God out. And uh, as I was doing that, my heartbeat began to get very regular. And I could feel that physically in my chest, like doom, doom. you don't feel your heartbeat normally, but it was so irregular that it, it just, I was feeling that and oh my gosh, I guess maybe I angered God a little bit or whatever, right? Or maybe I made it worse. And then I got this tremendous sense of fear. And because I thought 
when I die, there's nowhere for me to go. I didn't believe in anything. I would just be shut off like a light bulb and just turn into nothingness. So I became very fearful and I wanted so badly to ask somebody to hold my hand. Now, physically, I was, couldn't do that because I couldn't breathe. But the thoughts went through my mind and then I started thinking, well, I can't ask for help because my father would be ashamed of me because I'm supposed to be tough. I got to tough this out. So I stiffened and I waited for death because then I started thinking, well, you know, I think I'm in really real trouble here. I, I, I don't think I could get out of this. And I started to hear the IB and it sounded like raindrops hitting on a tin roof. So it was like splash, splash, splash. And I could look in, I looked at the wallpaper and I'll never forget this because my eyes were so cute that I could see the grain in the wallpaper. And there's this sense of wonder happening within me at the same time as I'm, no, I'm dying and I'm scared. Terrified might be a better word. And then I, I noticed this shadow by the door and it just stood there. And then I started thinking, you know what? I've had such a hard and difficult life. Maybe it's okay to kind of let go. Maybe there's, there's no shame in this. I'm not quitting. I'm not giving up. I'm just realizing that I, there's nothing I could do to, to, to stem this chain of events, right? I can't stop it. So I kind of said, it's okay. It's okay to die. And the minute I said that, or thought that, the shadow just moved. And it just moved around everybody in that room. And in my mind, I could see his, his hand reaching out to me. And it just touched my toe. And the minute it touched my toe, I just felt this tremendous sense of relief and relaxation and peace and love and calm. And I wasn't struggling to breathe anymore. I was in bliss and I felt this breeze, this really warm breeze just blowing. And I visualized because I got long hair, I'm thinking, wow, my hair must be blown in the breeze. This is, this is kind of like amazing. And then I felt myself kind of being lifted, lifted until I found myself in the corner of the room and I was observing the effort by the CPR team, the group that was there trying to save my life. And I looked at them and I could see there was a doctor right over me, just pumping, pumping, pumping. And I could see there was a lot of stress in her face. And uh, I looked at myself and I said, that's me and I'm dead. But if that's me, then who am I? This is the first thoughts that came to me, incredibly enough. And then I just heard this voice right next to me say, think of your body as a car. And that car has like 5 million miles on it and there's nothing we could do to fix it anymore. So, you know, 
you have to now say goodbye to your body. And I thought, wow, I just kind of said it was okay to die. Now I'm standing here because I feel like I'm standing there, right? I don't know what I look like. I don't know what form I'm in, but I know I'm, 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 I'm in some form of existence. And I look at myself and something very strange happened. For the first time in my life, I loved and appreciated who I was and who I've been. And I was so grateful for that body, that vessel, for giving me the opportunity to live the life that I lived. And I think there's something we rarely do. Take that one second to say, I'm not floored. I'm the way I'm supposed to be because we look, we're always looking for what's wrong with us. We never really appreciate what we have that's good about us. And I started to get these memories of what I call everyday benign things. So somebody smiling, my little brother, me holding his hand, you know, uh, a kiss, simple things, you know, a, a child looking at you with this amazing love in their eyes, your children. And I'm like, wow, did I miss all that? Because those are things that happen every day. Just taking in a breath of air, how in, insane and how amazing that is, right? So I had this insane appreciation for who I had been and who I was. And then the voice said to me, okay, now it's time for us to move on. And we started walking. Now, I never saw this presence, so I don't know what it was. It felt feminine. And then I could see this huge hole in the ground, like a big black hole. And we're kind of walking right into it, and we walk right into it, and then I feel like I'm falling. And it was a bit of a painful experience because I feel like something was being ripped off of me. And it felt like I was falling forever. And when I finally hit what I would call ground, it kind of ended for a second. And then she kind of said, you got to keep going. And there was another one. And I went into that hole and I fell and I kept falling and I felt this thing just ripping things off of me. When I hit the bottom, the first thing I saw was this mass of color. And the color was just moving and it had so much life in it that I became instantly amazed. Cause my expectation when I died was that I would encounter nothing and become nothing. Now I'm beginning to see things that were mind boggling in the sense that this color was alive. It was living and it was moving and it was talking to me and it was talking to me like millions of voices. So it sounded like chatter, like but somehow there was some kind of comprehension happening at a level that even there I couldn't really understand and then they just opened up and I saw this amazing forest now I grew up in New York City so that's to me quite striking because I saw these mountains and I could see this the shadow that the clouds make on the mountains and they were so dark and contrasty and I could see these wild herds of animals just running, mass, massive herds. And I found that I was kind of hovering 
So I started thinking. I have to ask what kind of animals. Uh, I think I saw a lot of deer, uh, mostly animals like that. So I felt like I was in the Serengeti in Africa. So I'm seeing like all these, these herds of animals just running all over the place. And something that I would probably only see in a zoo, because where I, where I am, we didn't have none of that. So I saw this amazing vista and I'm looking up and I'm seeing that mountain and I'm realizing that I'm flying. So I said, oh my gosh, I'm flying. And I heard this voice just say to me, that's normal here. And then I, I thought about my children and this was the, the only aspect of when I was transitioning that was a bit painful to me. So I said, what's gonna happen to my kids? And that boy said to me, don't worry, you could see them from here. And when I heard that, that was like the most amazing thing that I have ever heard. And I said, oh, wow, this is amazing. So it took all my fears away. And then I just started flying and I started moving over this landscape and, and, and looking down and, and feeling, of course, that amazing sense of peace and calm and tranquility that uh, comes with it and, and this deep sense of love. And there's no way to really describe it. You've heard that probably a hundred times, but there really isn't. But I continued on my journey and I went over the mountaintops and I could see snow on the top. And I was like, wow, so amazed. I was really awed more than anything. And then I looked out into the horizon and I could see the sun. But I saw the sun as if I'm looking through a telescope and I could see the flares coming out of it and all that activity. And I, I felt that this wind that I was feeling was, you know, giving birth there. And it was this warm air that was just coming to me. And that's why I was able to fly. That's what was giving me this lift, this warm air. And I'm thinking all these things. And I look down and I see this amazing cove and I see a beach. And I see a man in the water, he's like knee deep in the water. And he's got six children holding onto his right hand in a, in a string, right, in a line, and one child on his left hand. And I said, wow, that's pretty amazing. This is, let me go down and see what that's all about. So I moved down, and maybe I'm about 10 feet, 15 feet away, and he turns around. That was my father. And uh, we just looked at each other's. It was amazing to see him, but what was more amazing was that me and my father had a very, very hard relationship. We used to bump heads tremendously. And he used to drink, and he was quite abusive. And uh, even though I was the seventh of eight children, I became like my mother's protector. And so we had a lot of clashes and I don't ever remember saying to my father in life that I love you or he to me. And his ways were very strict. So we couldn't hog, that wasn't what men do. It was like very, he had this image of men being like, empty 
without a soul, without feelings, without. So that's what you learn. So it was riveting that I had this experience. And in my mind, if we could call it a mind, maybe my consciousness, I was just thinking, wow, what an opportunity to say to my father what I could never say to him in life. And so we had this exchange that was very emotional to me. But I understood that he loved me. And I think he understood that I loved him. So it kind of reunited us in a strange way. Not only did we meet there, but it, from a more spiritual perspective, we, we became one. Anyway, after all this amazing time, he looks at me and he says, look, you have to go back. And I'm looking at him and I said, no, I don't think so. I really like it here. He's like, no, you got to go back. It's not your time. And I'm looking at him like, no, I, I want to stay. And uh, then I felt this tugging, like in my chest, but coming from my back. And I started being pulled. And I went back into my body. I opened my eyes, and the doctor that was doing CPR, CPR she kind of got surprised, and she kind of lifted her head back a little. And then I went right back to my father, and I was in this space again. And he's looking at me, he says, no, you really don't get it, you have to come back. And he said, look, this is what we're going to do. So we kind of started to structure a deal in heaven. <laughs> and he said to me, look, when it's your time, I promise I will come and get you. And I looked at him and I'm thinking, wow, what an amazing deal that is. I, how could I say no? And so I accepted that. And... I went back and I went back into body and it was quite painful because I had a respirator on and I was struggling. Uh, I wound up in hospital for almost three months. And uh, I have to say that the experience, even in an amazing way, it would save my life after it brought me back because I would escape to the space of color every time they hit that cold blue because my prognosis was you're not going to leave this place alive so you better take care of all you, whatever you need to take care of and uh, it even though I had the experience it, it it still was fearful to me because I thought that my mind was broken I didn't think that I wasn't sure that had happened. And then when I asked my cardiologist when I could finally speak a little, I said, I think I went somewhere. He just looked at me and said, no, no. You got a chemical reaction in your brain and your brain is still alive for two minutes after your heart stops. And I'm like, oh my gosh, maybe I am crazy. And so there was a lot of uncertainty. And uh, So you, three months in the hospital and 
you were probably medicated, but you were still able to connect with that other side at times? Were there moments when you were able to believe or were you talked out of it by that cardiologist? Well, it was a real struggle for me because the instant I came back, I was wondering if that had really happened. You know, there's that rational side of me, I guess that left brain that kind of says, this is not logical, this is, doesn't make any sense, this can't be real. So I wrestled with that for a bit, and it made that difficult, more difficult, because every time they hit a cold blue, I'm thinking, that could be me, or it will be me eventually, and it, it created a lot of stress and fear, and I, I would escape to that space of colors, and somehow, I began to get better. And it got to the point where I was getting ready to leave the hospital and my cardiologist looked at me and says, I don't know how you, how you survived. You know, it, I don't know how you did it. You're my miracle patient. I'm looking at this guy like, still very confused because I'm still wrestling with, did it happen? Did it not happen? Did these colors actually help me to improve? I left there and it took me like three or four months to be able to get my feet back under me because you get very weak from being in a bed. The muscles turn to spaghetti. Oh, I can, I can only imagine after that long, I was only in the hospital for nine days, but I was training for a race before that. So I was in great shape. I couldn't lift up on my toes after nine days in the hospital and then five more days, you know, in in bed at home. Yeah. It's, it's almost like the ground is moving. And you're kind of like just trying to, you know, so that took a while. And, and I, I had to use all these oxygen equipment. I had an oxygen concentrator and I had all this stuff. So it's kind of like being in the hospital, being at home. Yeah. And uh, anyway, it took a while to get my feet back. And, and it took a really long time to begin to understand what happened to me because I thought I was crazy. I went to see a psychiatrist. Wow. And, but the way you I have to jump in, the way you tell the story now, it's so connected and so powerful and you're a beautiful storyteller. And, you know, I, I connect with the emotion a lot as you're talking. So, but you're telling me after this experience, you were not connected in that way to it. No. In, what I felt was a total disconnect from mm-hmm. this world. I felt like I didn't belong here. Yeah. And that was very deep. And it, it's almost like there was this invisible bubble around me that kept me separate from everything. And I could be in a room with my family and it felt like I was still somewhere else. Yeah. And they were all there like having this conversation and I might participate, I might not, but I just felt so separated from it. That's I couldn't a- understand that. That's the first time I've really thought about that. But I had those first couple of years, I had those moments too. And I'd feel so separate sometimes that sometimes I'd feel really connected to others and this oneness, but other times I'd wonder if I was dead and I was a ghost. I was like, wait, am I really here? (laughs) You know, like that disconnected. Or or am I in another reality? And and looking into, it's almost like I was looking in through a window and seeing this world. And I'm like, I don't belong here. Yeah. I went to see a psychiatrist and, uh, my experience with psychiatry was ultimately they helped me to find my way, but it was a journey in itself. 
So my, my first psychiatrist was very traditional. And because I was in the hospital so long, I had to see a mental health specialist that was not only that, but also a nurse or some kind of practitioner so that she would have a better understanding or he of being in the hospital for a long time, what, what, how that impacts people. And uh, so anyway, I didn't speak. I didn't know how to talk about this experience. I, I couldn't say, you know what, I'm seeing you because I had an experience that I can't explain and I think my, my mind broke somewhere and I'm lost. So I, I really didn't speak and we, I saw her for three or four months and I, I didn't say barely a word, but she would still be writing something on her pad. And I'm like, I wonder what she could be writing. <laughs> anyway, one day I said to her, you know, I, I've been coming here for three or four months and I'm really unable to say why I'm here. Maybe I need to kind of move on and maybe see a different person and, Oh, and then she said, no, I got it all figured out. Don't worry. You hate women. You hate your mother. And I'm looking at her like, wow. Wow. That's a lot of projection. <laughs> and I looked at her and I said, this, this sounds so Freudian. And she just looked at me like, what do you mean? I said, I you have no idea why I'm here. You know, but it's okay. You know, if that's what you feel, you know, I... You know, so I called my insurance company and they said, okay, we're going to put you with somebody else. And I met this other woman and this woman was really short. Now I'm a short guy. She was really short. And I'll never forget this because I go into her room and you have to sit in a sofa where you're kind of pitched back and looking up. And then she, she, she climbed like three steps and she sat on this big chair with a huge back and it <laughs> was all the way up to the ceiling. So you're kind of like looking up, like, anyway, she helped me because she got me in the hospital. You become addicted to a lot of things, right? So I became addicted to the sedatives they were giving me to keep my heart rate down because uh, they were worried that if my heart accelerated, it would kind of throw me back into one of these episodes. So they, they were giving me Xanax and they're giving That's you that tough. every four hours. Yeah, I came out of there. I, I didn't even realize I was addicted to anything. Oh, yeah. That's a terrible But anyway, yeah. So I finally realized that I was getting a lot of anxiety and I began to notice that it happened like an hour before I would have to take the, the medication. Yeah. So it's kind of like my body saying, hey, we need this kind of like, and I'm like, thinking this is supposed to be like anti-anxiety. So I, what I did, I cut it in half and then I cut that half in half and I eventually weaned myself off. And one day I went to see her and I said, wow, I got off. You know, I followed your advice. You told me to, uh, when, when God gives you lemons, make lemonade. And I said, okay. And I, I think I did that. And she said, well, I could help you with that and all that. But I said, you did. And she had asked me to read a book written by uh, someone named Cousins. And I think it was called The Celebration of Life. And uh, it was a short book and you read it quick. You read it in a day, a day and a half. But it touched on a lot of things that I felt were relevant to me. You know, so uh, there was a pianist that had severe rheumatoid arthritis and he couldn't move his fingers or barely move. But when he sat by that piano, he just went 
playing this amazing music. And I said, wow, if he could do that, I could survive this. Right? Now, I'm still wrestling with that issue. I still think I'm crazy. <laughs> right? And I'm still having this disconnect from everybody. Yeah. Uh, but ultimately, I wound up with another, a really wonderful psychologist. And she was young. And she, after I saw her for a few months, she actually said to me, sit, sit here. She sat on the sofa with me and she just took my hand. And it brought me to that moment when I was so fearful of dying in the hospital. And I wanted to ask for somebody to hold my hand, but I was too cowardly to ask for help. I thought I was being brave, but in hindsight, what a coward I was, you know, that I could not ask for something that was so integral at that moment because I was taught that I was supposed to be a certain way and I kind of gave up my humanity in a sense. I sacrificed that for that. Anyway, she took my hand and I was able to tell her the story for the first time. Mm. And uh, <clears throat> I think she got really caught up in it. And uh, anyway, she got me past a lot of things. And then one day she was very open. And she said to me one day, you know, why don't we go see a psychic? I'm not supposed to do this, but why don't we go see a psychic? I just want to see how they respond to you and how you respond to them. Now, good idea. <laughs> yeah, in my mind, I'm thinking of psychic. I'm still, to me, that's still a lot of woo, right? Even though I had the experience, I'm still trying to integrate all that. But I said, okay, let's do that. And then she asked me right after that, you know, can, what do you, what do you, can you tell me something about me? And, uh, you know, sometimes we get these like little pictures that we see and things, right? And I don't know if that's just people that have an experience. I think that's people in general. I think we just don't pay too much attention. But anyway, these pictures started popping in my head and I saw this little a lake in Florida. I live in Florida. So there are lakes everywhere. It's water everywhere, canals. And she, I saw a little boy floating in this water. And I, I saw a sneaker floating around and I could see a fence that part of it was ripped down. It had rusted out and it had fallen. And I told her, this is what I see. And she starts to cry. She's crying. She cried for about 20 minutes and I felt so bad. I'm like, oh my gosh, what did I do? Anyway, then she looked at me. She said, yeah, that's my son. He's two years old. And got away and wound up falling in, in, in water and, and he drowned. And then I was like scared because that's not like what I do. <laughs> I, I was really scared. I said, wow, what the heck was that? How could I possibly seen or known that? Anyway, the session ended and I came back the next week to go see the shrink and she looked at me and she said, no, I can't see you anymore. And I said, why? She said, I can't be with someone that knows more about me than I know about him. But I'm not going to leave you. Right? 
leave you like this. I'm going to recommend you to a friend of mine that's really, really open and she, she could really help you. And she did. She recommended me to this woman and she taught me to keep one foot here and one foot in the other space. Uh, she introduced me to a few really, really amazing people like uh, Barbara Brennan and things like that. Uh, and uh, anyway, a friend of hers uh, knew of Ian's, and she said, I want you to go to this thing and check it out. Incredibly enough, because I still wasn't really well, so I have all these heart monitors on and all this equipment. So I went to the, the meeting in, in the chapter of Fort Lauderdale for the first time. And I met Dr. Romer and I met uh, Dr. Newcomb and they were running it. Uh, about a month after I kind of went, uh, Dr. Romer became very ill and she, she had like, three weeks later she had passed. And uh, it was pretty sad in a way that I, you know, I didn't get really to meet her that well, only once or, uh, but uh, anyway, I, I continued to go and then Dr. Newcomb started to see me and truly helped me to transition and, and, and make peace with the event. Because um, it had been four years by then. And I finally said, you know what, this happened. Mm -hmm. I did my dad and he did say he loved me. And did you continue to open up and feel your dad after that? So well, it, you know, it's kind of interesting because even though you're in this denial, kind of confused, it's like a confusion. I never separated from the event. I could never disconnect myself. So you have that memory daily. I still have that memory daily. And not only daily, often. Yeah. Today. And it's kind of like, I describe it more like a DVD where it's always crystal clear and it never changes. It's always yeah. like exactly the same, exactly the same. And I began to think, you know, thoughts with time, even events that we experience kind of begin to fade a little and dissolve yes. a little bit here and there. And that one never does. <laughs> it's always like, ooh, like you're watching it. You can see it crystal yeah. clear. Isn't that amazing? I feel the same way, you know, like the angels will always stand out in my mind as like, whoa, <laughs> it's just, you know, a different, a different way of seeing. Yeah. And that itself, that thought started to kind of convince me, well, this is so unusual. This is like the fact that I could remember this like this and that it, it reminds me every day that it's there is is amazing. So it, it helped to kind of cement the fact that I finally embraced it. Yeah. So yeah. It, it, it helped it, from a logical perspective. My brain started to say, okay, you know, this is, there has to be something to that because look at how you remember this. Anyway, uh, Dr. Newcomb turned out to be an amazing, amazing mentor and uh, allowed me to embrace this. And I looked at her one day and I said, you know what? Well, I call her Joyce. We became good friends. And uh, I said to her, these colors that I saw, they, they were so profound. And I can't 
escape from them. I am going to try to capture them. And I looked at her and I said, I have a problem. I'm not a painter. I've never done anything like that. I have no idea how I would do that. And she just looked at me and she said, look, just take a deep breath. Take a deep breath. And source would find a way. And we always had this thing, I would call it spirit, she would call it source. At the end of the day, it's the same thing, God, whatever we want to call it, it doesn't matter. We're talking about the same thing. So I sat down and I started to think how I could create something that had this sense of movement and capture something about me because I wanted to use it for meditations. And so I said, the universe starts in an empty state, very profound, what we believe is an empty state, blackness. And attached to it, there's nothing in there. And I started to think about that and I said, okay, we're gonna start just like that. And the reason I start just like that, and, and I don't know how a lot of people think about this, but one of the things that happens when we go into a room that's totally dark, totally black, and I learned this from going to the sweats, is that that room is full of other people, but I can't see anything. So I know they're there, but visually they're not there. They don't exist. All I see is black. And that's how I, I, I imagined the universe was in the beginning. And then there's this explosion of light and color. And creation happens. And, and so that was my sense. So I paint with a black canvas. And then I start to put first ones actually started with my image because the idea was when I was dead and I had first come out of my body and I saw myself, I said, that's me and I'm dead, but who am I? It's like, I need to find who I am. This is what I look like now. So I'm going to start with this and then I'm going to keep painting over it, painting over it, painting over it. And I did that because that represents the many different people that we become during the course of our life. So when I'm five, I'm not the same like when I'm 10 or 13 or 17 or 20. We become more, we change as we learn, as we experience, and, and all those things become a permanent part of our being. But collectively, they create change. And I wanted to see if I could try to capture that hmm. and create a venue where if we look at it, we could find a path to the origin of our being. That's profound. <laughs> and that's, that's really incredibly profound. And I've loved your story. I'm actually going to stop this here because I want to, um, how's the next part of this and the summit, the online summit where you can really talk about this art and how it can um, touch people's lives and change them in beautiful ways, help them heal. Uh, just what a great story. Wow. Thanks for being on my channel. Like this was really fantastic. Thank you, Trisha. I really appreciate the opportunity. And I, I'm, I'm going to say that 
in my eagerness to tell my story, I forgot to just say my name is Jose Hernandez and, and a simple thing like that. So I think I did say it at the beginning, but I'll put the links to your website, oh, um, you know, beneath this video and, and all the links to things that you're doing um, as well in the show notes. But yeah, check out the summit as well to hear the rest of Jose Hernandez's uh, story and more about what he's doing. But thank you so much. Thank you.